Our psalm of the day comes from Psalm 36. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delight. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Galatians 5. We're reading verses 1 through 15. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we do ask for your help, that your spirit would lead and guide us into all truth, that we know how to understand and apply and work out these great truths of the gospel into our lives. We ask you to speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. 
As a young graduate from seminary, I went directly to Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee, where I was mentored by Sandy Wilson, my friend, and he continues to, to provide me guidance over the years. And early on, we were talking about preaching. I was studying several books with him, and he was listening to my first attempts uh, to preach, and they were rather eventful. And I arrived at one of those passages that was fairly difficult. It had some things that were rather uncomfortable uh, to talk about, especially in church. People would be bashful, but there it was in the Bible. And so I remember asking Sandy, I said, well, what's been your experience with dealing with certain chapters in the Bible that um, are a little less than, a uh, little more than PG-13? And he said, well, Chuck, and he was actually referring to this passage that we have in Galatians, where Paul actually says, I wish my opponents would, would emasculate themselves. And, um, and so I asked him, I said, well, Sandy, what do you do? He said, well, um, last time I dealt with that, I, I just came out and said it. And, uh, and then I received so many phone calls the next week. And, and one little old lady in particular called me and said, you know, that was inappropriate. And he said, well, I tried to politely respond, well, you know, we can't be more holy than the Bible is. And she said, well, I know, but this is Second Presbyterian. And he said, that's about all I can tell you. And so, folks, there are some things in the Bible that are just flat uncomfortable. And you've got one of them right here, where Paul says, I wish these people who came in and preached circumcision to this church that I planted would go ahead and go a little further. He runs with it, okay? And there was a bit of biting irony with that, because that would mean that they were then eunuchs and could not enter into the Jewish temple. It's kind of a joke, so it even gets worse. And we've seen that this is the book of Galatians. This short epistle is full of vim and vigor and polemic. It has all kinds of dichotomies and polarities in it, where Paul is taking out after those who are preaching what he calls another gospel. They had come proclaiming a good news that was no news, and it certainly wasn't good at all. And here they are corrupting the church. And Paul at times can be filled with nuance, where he can leave liberty for conscience in all kinds of areas. But when it came to this certain matter, where the truth of the gospel was at stake, where everything was on the line, he is full of black and white, laser-sharp thinking, dichotomies that he wants to press upon the church, that they see that they are in danger of falling away from grace, is the language he uses in Galatians 5. And so from the outset, he presents these dichotomies, two poles of a revelation that comes from God and a revelation that is of human tradition. He then goes further and says there's a justification by the works of the law and a justification by the faithfulness of Christ. He takes it further and says there's an inheritance by the law and there's an inheritance that comes from the promise. There are slaves and there are sons. There is the spirit and there is the flesh. There are the children of Sarah and the children of Hagar. It's a dichotomous book in which he's pressing you into one corner or the other so that the grace of God would stand free and clear of any confusion. And that is the word of God still to us today, that the grace of God stand free and clear, that it not be confused, that it not be adulterated, that it not be watered down, that it exists in all of its glorious freedom as to what it is to be for us in Christ. 
And so, of course, some people are uncomfortable with such language. It doesn't seem to quite meet religious standards. And why does Paul get so aggressive? Because he does see that everything is on the line in Galatia, that they are under the threat of embracing a gospel, a formal piece of doctrine, a formal piece of practice that leads them to deny the grace of God. Look with me in verse 4 in chapter 5. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. And remember the context that Paul preached the gospel to this church that was mostly made up of Gentiles. And then some missionaries came following up his work who were of Pharisaic origin. We learn about them in Acts chapter 15. And they come demanding that these Gentile converts fully convert by submitting themselves to the Jewish Torah. And that in particular involved the final sign of circumcision. Paul is writing them expressing that the time of the law has passed, that that time in history has now been brought to a close by Jesus Christ. And he says that this is to then supplement the gospel. If you demand law obedience on top of faith in Jesus, you are supplementing the gospel with something. And you are requiring something else for right standing with God. And to stitch human compliance to the law onto the gospel is to sever oneself for Christ. That's been Paul's entire argument from chapter 1, and it will go all the way through chapter 6. The addition of any fundamental principle to Christ for justification forsakes the dominion of grace. This is what he is laboring to communicate because it ultimately removes the offense of the cross if you can add to what Jesus does for us. Look with me in verse 11. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, who am I still to be persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. And Paul does not want to lighten up on the offense of the cross that is a radical message about our separation from God, about how we can do nothing, that a revelation must come from God himself, that this is not about a reward, but rather it's a revelation from God, that salvation is a gift received, not something earned or merited, that it has to come freely to us from God. This is what he's holding out for. It's the work of God, not the work of human beings. And when we supplement Christ, we end up supplanting him. As we arrive at the close of the letter, Paul is now driving all of this home, and he's applying it. And the question for us this morning is, what do we do about this situation where a church can get so messed up with the gospel that they begin to embrace another gospel that it actually is no gospel at all? Paul's prescription is fairly simple in chapter 5, because in verse 1, we see that we simply must embrace our freedom. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This verse is the conclusion of his argument from chapter 4, and it's the beginning of his next argument. It operates somewhat like a hinge. And it defies most of the logic that we tend to use about the Christian life. Because when we think about the Christian life, we tend to think of it as one long, arduous struggle for freedom. And that we're never quite arriving there. But do you see how Paul reasons with us? 
for freedom, Christ has set us free. In other words, he's not saying that freedom is something yet future for you. But rather, for freedom, Christ has already set you free. That you are free. That's the status, that's the state in which you currently exist if you have placed your faith in Christ. Something has happened to you, and you have now been moved from one category in front of God to a new category in front of God. You have been set free, is what he argues. This fills out what he teaches earlier. When we have been crucified with Christ, we have also been raised with Christ. So, of course, we are now free. We are free from our sins, free from the curse of the law. We are now free for God. And the logic is that he wants us to embrace that freedom that already belongs to us. Appropriate it. Experience it. It's yours. When I was first at Second Presbyterian, I was ordained in around the year 2005, and I remember I had made a transition from being a staff person who worked with young couples to suddenly being a minister. And that put me on a certain, um, a certain plane in, in that society, and it meant that suddenly people were less honest with me. Um, they were not relating to me as freely, and I was feeling the tremendous weight of the responsibilities that I had given uh, had been given to do. And I felt somewhat like a kid. If you remember as a kid, when you used to go put on your dad's clothes, you shuffle around and his, my dad wore penny, penny loafers. Uh, you shuffle around the penny loafers and his big blue shirt, you know, that was down to my ankles. And that was how I felt. I just felt ridiculous. Like here I was given all this responsibility and charge and I had no clue what to do with it. So I went into for a conversation with with Sandy one day, and I, and I asked him, I said, you know, is this abnormal? I feel like I'm called to do it, but I'm just feeling incredibly awkward that I was designated in front of the church, hands were laid on me, and I was set apart to be a pastor, and now I'm struggling with actually all that that means. And what he said to me was, was truly interesting. He said, Chuck, yeah, you are a pastor. That evening, when we laid hands on you and prayed for you, you were set apart. A declaration was made by God and the church about who you are. You're a pastor. And he said, so go be a pastor. (laughs) This is what you are. Now go embrace it. Call down on God to be your sufficiency in the midst of it. And friends, he was using the same logic that God uses with us here. You are free. Go be free. You, are, you exist for freedom. Christ has set you free. That freedom is yours. Appropriate it. Download it. Use it. Employ it. It is yours. It doesn't run out. It has an endless supply. It's locked up in Jesus Christ. And if your faith is in him, then of course that is yours. Your feelings about it, your experience of it doesn't really matter. Your emotional state is not where this is grounded. That this is grounded in the declaration of God. What he says about you, you are free. Therefore, go and be free. And friends, that's how the logic of the gospel works. 
that you are free, free from the weight of your sins, free from the curse of the law, free from anyone telling you that you must supplement your faith in Jesus with anything else. And you need to embrace that freedom fully, wholly, utterly embracing all that that means for you. And then where Paul goes, though, is he's going to answer the question of what difference does this make? What difference does this kind of freedom make? What happens to the free person in Christ? And we find the answer actually in verses 5 through 15, where he's going to explain what the difference freedom makes in our lives. And what we learn is that we're free to exercise our faith. That is, we are now free to live out a life of faith and all that that life of faith means. And there's two distinct parts that we find in these 10 verses. And the first is that faith eagerly anticipates the end. If you look with me in verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. And what Paul is arguing here is that those who by the Spirit have been united to Jesus, who are living in faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness, a future event, and that future event is where God very publicly declares that we are in the right before all the world on the great last day. So he goes future tense, the hope of righteousness, the hope when all of this is made publicly known at the day of judgment is what he speaks of. And he says, we, those who have currently been justified in Christ, are eagerly awaiting that day. And friends, that's what faith frees you for, that it frees you to have an eager expectation of that day, not a fearful expectation of it. And you see, if you think that you have to supplement your faith in Jesus and that your acceptability in front of God is really based on what you do, if it's based on how good you are or how many quiet times you have or how many people you have evangelized, all good things to be done, but if you think your standing in front of God is based on those things and that's the way you experience the Christian life, then you will not live with an eager anticipation of the end. You simply cannot. You're going to dread it. You're going to fear it because you're enslaved to thinking he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. But that's not the way Christian freedom or our standing with God works. That rather we're free to anticipate the end because we know what the verdict is going to be. The verdict has already been established in Christ. When he was crucified and when he was raised, he vindicates all of God's people, all of God's elect, and he sets them apart and makes them his own. And friends, we place our faith in him, and we're declared to be right with God. And it's not based on anything in us. It's alien to us. It comes from the outside. It's revealed from God and given to us as gift. And so, of course, we can eagerly anticipate the hope of righteousness because we know it belongs to us because we belong to Christ. And that's the first part of this free exercise of our faith. Now, the second is that faith is expressed in love and that we are now free to live that life of love, if you follow in verse 6. 
For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And people would have naturally been asking the question, well, if the law has been fulfilled, what now? What what is to govern our lives? And Paul gives a unique and somewhat tricky answer here, and we have to follow his logic pretty clearly. But it's clear just from the beginning here that when Paul says we are free, it doesn't mean that we are free from responsibility in front of God. We're not free to simply go and do whatever we want just because we've been made right with God through Jesus Christ. Actually, he's going to say that the grace of God then frees us to walk in the fulfillment of the law, that everything that these Judaizing Christians were wanting had already been given in Christ, that we're free now to seek this fulfillment. Follow with me in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. You see, you're not supposed to abuse it. You don't take your freedom out and use it for your own ends and for your, according to your own norms and your own standards. But through love, serve one another. That is the freedom that you have been given. It's the freedom of the cross of Jesus, that you are free to be a loving servant of the community and the neighborhood and the people around you. That's the nature of your freedom. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And here what Paul is developing is the idea that's found in Jeremiah chapter 31, specifically in verse 33, where God promises through the prophet Jeremiah that there would be a day where there would be a new covenant. And on the day of the new covenant, that the law of God would go from some external thing written on tablets of stone to be written on our hearts by the Spirit of God. And Paul is proclaiming that that is what has now happened that by the Spirit, we are now, we now have the law of God written in us, and we are empowered and encouraged and impelled to walk in the way of love. And that the law of love is not replacing, actually, things like the Ten Commandments. It's just the summary and fulfillment of it. And so what does it look like to be a loving person? It means that you're a person who does not live in resentment and anger committing murder in your heart. What does it look like to be a loving person? It is a person who doesn't use someone else's spouse for their own advantage. What does it look like to be a loving person? It's someone who doesn't long for things that are not their own, coveting them in their heart. That we find out the fulfillment, the explanation of what it means to love in the Ten Commandments. And so Paul says that, yes, we've been freed from the law. We've been actually freed from the law through the law. But then, ironically, we're freed from the law through the law for the law. But that law has been fulfilled in Jesus, and it's now transformed for us. And we don't relate to that as something that we have to do to gain favor in front of God, but rather as adopted sons and daughters 
The Spirit of the Son, he tells us in chapter 4, has been sent into our hearts, and we cry out to him, Abba, Father. And now as little children, we're eager to please him. We desire to please him. And so our primary prayer in the life of sanctification is, God, lead me in this way. Teach me what it is to fulfill the law of love. To be under the law of Christ is language that he uses in chapter 6. And so, friends, we're not freed from all responsibility, but we're led into a way of being responsible in front of God that's detached from earning and deserving and gaining. And rather, we're free for this life, the life that God always wanted for us as his creatures. That's what the purpose of salvation is. Yesterday, I took on the task of cleaning my driveway. And uh, it's been a while since my driveway has been cleaned. Um, and you know how these things work. When you look at that driveway, you think, well, it's, it's slightly dirty. And Florida driveways get moldy and nasty. And it's been at least three years, because I've owned the home for three years uh, since it's been cleaned. So I had set apart a couple of hours for this task, and I had Rob Heide equipment. So I had great equipment. I was ready to blast the driveway. And, uh, you know, some four hours later, I'm starting to finish up. Um, it took a while. It was nasty. And it was a scrubbing process where using big, heavy machinery, my legs were actually covered in sand, I noticed. And I thought, where did I get sand from? And I was like, oh, it's concrete. <laughs> I was literally blasting away the concrete. And isn't this the way that we experience the Christian life at times, where it feels like God, when he is cleaning us, it is just violent, okay? And part of what happened was that I needed to get along the edge after using the big machine. And along the edge, I had a wand, and I was spraying, and I, wasn't, I was getting tired, so I wasn't too cautious, and I kept hitting the flower bed. And so I finished cleaning that area, and then some of you know what happened. I looked up at the front of my house, and it was covered with mud splatter. <laughs> and so in cleaning and fixing one thing, I had actually destroyed something else. And friends, this is how we oftentimes feel about the Christian life. And we can, come, we can become pretty incredibly hopeless that we just feel like, look, in trying to fix one thing, I just break 10 other things. And in trying to clean up a mess, I create a bigger mess. And there's good news for you in this, that when God says he writes the law upon our hearts and he sends the Spirit into our hearts, that what Paul is proclaiming is that you're not on your own in this. That you're not left to pull yourself up by your moral bootstraps and make yourself better and will yourself to do it, but that you've been given every grace that you need in the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's learning to rely upon that Spirit to see these things change and to experience the powers of new creation in our lives. And so, friends, instead of just white-knuckling it and saying, I'm going to do it better, we need to learn to turn and to look to the Holy Spirit, and to ask Him to guide us in the way of the law's fulfillment, that He would lead us in that and what it means. Because it's not just going to be that you make a mess, that yes, there will be days where stuff gets pulled open and it seems incredibly difficult and rigorous and arduous, and there is grace for you on that day. 
You have the freedom to actually do it. But friends, the Holy Spirit also lives in you to lead you and guide you in a progressive and unfolding way that will be experienced uneven, somewhat like a roller coaster, up and down, but progressively ever forward into the way and the path of love. This is what God has for you in Jesus. This is the life of faith. This is the freedom that he sets you apart for and that in Christ he says is yours. And he wants you to embrace it. He wants you to love it. He wants you to experience it. And it begins by knowing all that is ours in Christ. Know that freedom. Don't forsake it. Don't deny the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for all that is ours in Christ. And that Christ has come and he has died and he has been raised. And now your law has been written upon our hearts and we are free. We are free from our sins and we're now free for you for the exercise of our faith. That the Spirit would be working in us for love. That it would be faith working through deeds of love. God, transform us and change us. Teach us what it means to love. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.